the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producer, Clark Hilton engineer for today's program. Jonathan Moe, Dr. Jonathan Moe will be my guest later this uh, hour. He's a primary care physician at Portland Adventist Health Park Rose Clinic. We're going to talk about the death of 52-year-old Luke Perry, who died of a massive stroke. It's pretty young for a stroke. We're going to talk about what a stroke is, how to avoid it and who's most vulnerable. He'll be joining us in our next segment. And in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Joel Rosenberg. He's got a new novel coming out on the 12th, The Persian Gamble. It's published by Tyndale, and it's one of his riveting stories that uh, seem to reflect what um, uh, what's happening or what certainly could happen based on uh, news stories that are, are occurring today. Now, he says that he likes to take the worst-case scenario. Now, he's not predicting that this is what will happen, but... Uh, in this riveting uh, novel, The Persian Gamble, he's going to take us on a ride uh, involving players that are of concern today. So we'll talk with uh, Joel Rosenberg in the five o'clock hour. First, a few of the day's headlines. President Trump late Sunday tweeted that the call to uh, have his former attorney, Michael Cohen, testify on Wednesday in front of the House Oversight Committee may have contributed to the walk that resulted in his second nuclear summit with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. Now, that seems like a bit of a stretch to me, particularly given the fact that in Vietnam, the coverage of that summit was wall to wall. And when things were happening here, they were asleep there. But nonetheless, the president initially blamed North Korea for demanding too much in sanction relief that would only come with total denuclearization. But late Sunday, he tweeted the following for the Democrats to interview in open hearings, a convicted liar and fraudster at the same time as the very important nuclear summit with North Korea is perhaps a new low in American politics and may have contributed to the walk. Never done when a president is overseas. Shame. Now, part of that is true. It's certainly uh, unusual. I'm not sure if it's ever been done, but it's certainly unusual. You generally extend a modicum of respect to the uh, commander in chief when he's uh, uh, abroad, but uh, to suggest that that may have contributed to the walkout, eh, not so much. Well, at least 23 people were confirmed dead and many, many injured when an apparent large tornado, tornado rather, destroyed several homes in a southeast Alabama community on Sunday. Lee County Sheriff Jay Jones told the Associated Press late Sunday evening that children are among the dead. He says it's possible the death toll could continue to rise, but authorities are pausing uh, search efforts overnight because conditions were dangerous in the dark due to massive amounts of debris. And the Democrats believe they have a strong collusion case on the heels of last week's testimony from President Trump's former personal attorney and fixer Michael Cohen. Democrats appear to believe they have clear evidence of collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia and were stating their case on the Sunday news show circuit. Now, the word collusion is dropping from the vocabulary and they're using other language. But nonetheless, Senator Mark Warner, a Democrat from Virginia on Sunday, said there are enormous amounts of evidence linking the, the Trump campaign to Russia. The same day, House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff 
a Democrat out of California, said there's direct evidence of collusion between the two. By the way, in his um, testimony last week, Cohen refuted claims of evidence of collusion between Trump and Russia. So this this is going to be pretty much what's going to be the focus for the next two years. Still, more investigations may await the president. House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jerry Nadler, who would oversee any impeachment proceedings against the president, announced that he will submit more than 60 document requests to the White House and Justice Department today, a barrage that Nadler called the opening salvo in new and wide-ranging investigations. And Senator Rand Paul, Republican out of Kentucky, has announced that he will vote against the president's measure to declare a national emergency at the southern border. In an exclusive op-ed for FoxNews.com, Rand Paul says he still supports the president's fight for more border security and funding for the border wall, but explains why he can't back his declaration of a national emergency, saying Donald J. Trump agreed with me when he said in November of 2014 that President Barack Obama couldn't make a deal on immigration, so now he has to use executive action, and this is a very dangerous thing. It should be overridden easily by the Supreme Court. I would literally lose my political soul if I decided to treat President Trump different than President Obama. Um, I support President Trump. However, I cannot support the use of emergency powers to get more funding, end quote. Well, Green New Deal leader Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, made her getaway from the St. Patrick's Day parade a little early this year in a four-hire minivan on Sunday, and it created quite the stir. Despite being just blocks from a Queens subway station, the New York Post reported, the leading advocate for the proposed Green New Deal hopped into a white Chrysler town and country with livery plates after marching just part of the way of the 20th annual St. Pat's Day, uh, St. Pat's for All parade. The 2016 model of the vehicle gets an average of just 17 miles per gallon in the city on regular gas, according to the U.S. Department of Energy. Well, hours before her parade appearance, Ocasio-Cortez defended her penchant for traveling in gas-guzzling private vehicles instead of using mass transit in a tweet to the Post, saying living in the world as it is isn't an argument against working towards a better future. And the U.S. and China are closing in on a trade deal, we're being told. The two countries are in the final stages of completing a trade deal with Beijing offering to lower tariffs and other restrictions on American farm, chemical, auto and other products. And Washington considering removing most, if not all, sanctions levied against Chinese project products rather since last year. This is a report from The Wall Street Journal. The argument is um, taking shape following February's talks in Washington. People briefed on the matter on both sides are saying. Despite remaining hurdles, the talks have progressed to the extent that a formal agreement could be reached at a summit between the presidents, Trump and Xi, uh, Xi Jinping, probably around the 27th of this month after Mr. Xi uh, finishes a trip to Italy and France, individuals with knowledge of the plan are saying. And a hearing on the lawsuit from the family of the Alabama woman who wants to come back to the United States after having joined ISIS and urged her, well, fellow Americans in quotes, because that's one of the issues to be settled. Hoda Muthana's family launched a legal battle against President Trump, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, and Attorney General William Barr after the administration said she was not an American citizen and would be prohibited from coming into the country with her young son. Muthana currently is living at a refugee camp in northeast Syria, and she is willing to pay whatever debt she has to society, even if it means serving a lengthy prison sentence, her family's lawyer 
uh, said. Now, we're going to take a break here in just a moment. We'll wind through a few more headlines uh, a bit later. But next, we're going to talk with Dr. Jonathan Moe, primary care physician from Portland Adventist Health. He works at the Park Rose Clinic. Luke Perry died at 52 from a massive stroke. So who's vulnerable and what's a stroke anyway? We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, everyone was surprised to learn that actor Luke Perry, who gained fame as a teenage heartthrob on Beverly Hills 90210, became a fan favorite a TV dad with his starring role in the hit series Riverdale, has died at age 52 after he suffered a massive stroke. Now, much of what I've been hearing is he was only 52. No further details were being released at the time, but last week, Perry was admitted to a hospital for observation. At the time, his representative didn't confirm reports that he'd suffered a stroke. According to TMZ, paramedics responded to a call at the Star's home in Sherman Oaks, California, uh, in the morning on Wednesday, the call came into the fire department for someone suffering a stroke. Well, he did not survive that stroke, and it's raised a lot of concern and questions among those who recognize that stroke is a concern, but don't really know who's likely to suffer a stroke and under what conditions. Well, here to talk with us about that is Dr. Jonathan Moe. He's a primary care physician at Portland Adventist Health Park Rose Clinic, and so grateful for your time to help us better understand uh, stroke, uh, what it is, and who's vulnerable. Welcome. Yeah. Hi, Georgine. Well, first of all, let's talk about what a stroke is and how uh, how common it is. Like I, said, I think people are going to be surprised to learn. Yeah, well, so stroke, fundamentally speaking, is uh, when the brain doesn't get enough uh, doesn't get enough blood flow because the brain needs blood, the brain needs oxygen. And so that's either from a blockage from blood getting to the brain or it could be from bleeding to the brain. Now, the vast majority of strokes, however, are from some sort of blood clot that's traveled into the brain and preventing it from getting uh, the precious blood flow that it needs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, m- most of us imagine, well, I'm, I'm not vulnerable to a stroke or am I? What are some of the things that we need to be aware of to recognize that we might be vulnerable uh, to suffering a stroke? So the risk factors that we all look at when uh, we're, in, when we're in primary care, uh, there are certain medical conditions that uh, make people at higher risk for strokes, and mm-hmm. that's uh, elevated blood pressure, diabetes, uh, certain heart disease or heart conditions. Um, for example, if you've had heart attacks before, smoking is a big one, um, uh, male uh, gender, as well as uh, older age. And so those are the big risk factors that we think about. Um, the, the big one I, that I want to sort of like mention is smoking is that that's one that you can you can modify. You, mm-hmm. can, you, you have a choice about that. All the, the other stuff, more or less, you can't you don't have a whole lot of choice about those. Now, if you are um, suffering from a stroke or you're in the early ages of a, a, or stages of a stroke, what kinds of symptoms should you look for? So one uh, one of the acronyms that we use to to teach people about what to how to recognize a stroke is is the FAST acronym F A S T, and that stands for F is for facial droop that's one sided facial droop, arm weakness and that's one sided arm weakness not both sides. Um, S is speech difficulties which is usually either difficulty finding words or or even difficulty understanding other people's speech. And then the last item T is for time and. Uh, 
And that's just a reminder that time is of the essence, because once you identify uh, these particular symptoms, then you need to notify the health authorities, uh, the emergency health service, medical services immediately. Mm. If I think I'm having a stroke while I'm connecting or while I'm on the way, is there anything I can do that increase the, the likelihood that I will survive or at least um, the, a massive stroke can be postponed until I'm in the hands of authorities? Well, the biggest key things right now is is, act, is actually time to be able to get to a um, uh, a qualified stroke center, um, because we actually have a saying in the medical field that uh, time is brain, and so the the faster that you can identify the uh, the symptoms and then seek the uh, appropriate medical treatment, uh, the less likelihood you're going to have um, well, one that you're going to survive the stroke, and two that you're going to be able to have um, a re- good recovery from it. Now. If a stroke um, or how is a stroke diagnosed? If you suspect you have one, you've gone into uh, to see a doctor. How is that diagnosed? So stroke is principally diagnosed by uh, clinical exam from a qualified medical professional. Um, there's also certain types of imaging that can be done to identify strokes. Frankly, Georgine, the imaging is usually mostly just to, to um, uh, is mostly just to um, double check. Uh, people's uh, clinical diagnoses. It's principally uh, clinical diagnosis from, you know, trained medical professionals. Mm -hmm. Now, is it just hit and miss or are there things I can do to lessen the likelihood that I'm going to be the victim of a stroke? Well, I think the biggest thing is making sure that um, we're going back to those risk factors, you know, high blood pressure, diabetes, um, smoking, making sure that if you have any of those conditions, making sure that you're checking in regularly with your doctor to make sure that those are being well managed. Um, If you don't have those conditions, making sure that you check in with your uh, doctor once a week or sorry, once a year to make sure that we're screening those appropriately and making sure that we um, identify these conditions early on. Hmm. How important is hereditary? if your parents have had a stroke, are you more likely to be uh, susceptible? Absolutely. So we, we know that apart from the medical conditions that you may have, there's also a very strong genetic uh, component to having strokes. And so if your parents or direct other direct relatives have had strokes uh, early on in life or earlier on in life, or they might have died from strokes, that's an important thing to, to make sure that you let your medical provider know. Yeah. One of the things that I I've heard quite often is the the age of um, the uh, young man, Luke Perry, who was 52, died of the massive stroke. He seemed so young. Is 52 a a common age or is it a a bit higher in the 60s? No, 52 is quite young, actually. Mm -hmm. This is actually quite a big surprise. I think everyone was sort of caught off guard by it. You know, I'm not I'm not his doctor. I don't know what his medical history was like, if he had any significant risk factors, but I can tell you that he was quite young for something like this to happen. Uh, we, we typically don't expect this to happen until you're in your 60s mm-hmm. or, or 70s. Mm-hmm. So the best thing is to make sure that you're being seen by medical professionals to make sure that those risk factor, factors that you've mentioned, diabetes, blood pressure, and so on, that those things are in check. Cholesterol, does that play a significant role as well? Cholesterol, elevated cholesterol is another, um, is another component uh, it's usually considered a little bit less than some of the other risk factors, but yeah, that's definitely a contributing factor. If you are found to be someone um, who is a candidate to have a stroke, uh, are there proceed- medical procedures that are done, or is it primarily lifestyle changes that are recommended? In terms of prevention of stroke, 
there's not any significant medical procedures that can be done to prevent stroke. There are several medical procedures um, that are used in terms of an acute stroke when people are having stroke, mm-hmm. and, and our ability to, to treat strokes have, has, has advanced quite a bit over the last uh, decade or so. And so that's the other reason why um, we want to identify potential stroke symptoms very, very early on, because the sooner that we can make interventions, the more likely people are going to have a good recovery. Yeah. Well, Dr. Moe, thank you so much for helping us to better understand um, the nature of strokes, how to prevent them or avoid them. And uh, we'll certainly take that to heart. I know I called my primary care physician earlier today and made an appointment for a physical to just to make sure I'm, I'm older than 52. I want to make sure that I don't have risk factors that can be addressed before it's, uh, before it's too late. Well, as, as a primary care doctor, we, we appreciate that, Georgine. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Moe. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Again, uh, Dr. Jonathan Moe is a primary care physician at Portland Adventist Health at Park Rose Clinic. Uh, just reflecting on Luke Perry, who died at 52 from a massive stroke. As I've been uh, reading about this today, I learned that stroke kills almost 130,000 of the 800,000 Americans who die of cardiovascular disease every year. That's one in every 19 deaths from all causes. So it's a pretty significant number. A stroke sometimes called a brain attack. It occurs when a clot blocks the blood supply to the brain, as uh, Dr. Moore pointed out. And when a blood vessel in the brain bursts, you can reduce the risk for stroke through lifestyle changes, in some cases medication. But it's important that you are connected with a medical professional. And if uh, you have family members who have suffered strokes or uh, lost their lives as a consequence, you especially are at risk and should make sure that you have um, you have a good connection with a medical professional. By the way, anybody, including children, can have a stroke. Every year, about 610,000 people in the United States have a new stroke. There are several uh, factors that are beyond your control that can increase your risk, but there are certainly a, a number of things that will help. As Dr. Moe pointed out, smoking, drinking too much, uh, alcohol, not getting enough exercise, and so on. Keeping that uh, high cholesterol down, high blood pressure down, diabetes can also increase your risk. So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. If you need to make a phone call, we're going to go to a commercial break here in a minute. Call, call your doctor, make an appointment to make sure you're all right. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon. Welcome back. 33 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later in the second hour of today's program, we're going to talk with uh, New York Times bestselling author Joel Rosenberg, his latest, The Persian Gamble. He'll be joining us at 5. Former Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper has announced he's going to seek the Democratic nomination for president in 2020, becoming the second governor to join a crowded field of candidates. In 2013, Hickenlooper signed universal background checks into law and a ban on high-capacity ammunition magazines, but his uh, pro-business centrist profile could be a turnoff for progressives this time around. In the, uh, in the party. He's also been a strong supporter of Colorado's oil and gas industry, which is sure to be a point of contention for some uh, of the Democrats. Tax refunds are up from where they were this time last year by 1.3% following the fourth week of the 2019 filing season. That's according to new Internal Revenue Service data. To be more specific, the average tax refund has increased to 3143 from 3103 last February. According to cumulative statistics comparing the 2018 and 2019 filing seasons, oddly enough, certain newsrooms have responded to this development with total silence 
Uh, it was just a week um, or a few weeks ago, rather, that the same newsrooms rushed to report the tax refunds were smaller this year, suggesting either implicitly or explicitly that the uh, decrease was tied to the tax reform bill. The U.S. announced an end to its annual large-scale joint military exercises with South Korea on Sunday, according to NBC News, which adds that the drills will be replaced by smaller training exercises. Thomas Spohr warns that this could weaken U.S.-South Korean readiness in a conflict with North Korea, a conflict we hope never happens. The Department of Defense on Friday released a plan for the president's proposed Space Force, asking Congress for $2 billion to fund it over the next five years. The proposal sent to Congress on Wednesday stipulates that 1,500 space-related military and civilian personnel will be transferred from other areas of the Pentagon to the Space Force. In other words, they're already working in this area Um, but would be moved to a central location. With Democrats now in control of the House, the plan is expected to struggle to pass Congress as it's not popular among Democratic lawmakers. And Republican National Committee is making a concerted effort to court African-American voters ahead of the 2020 presidential election. The decision reflects a growing list of accomplishments the president can credibly point to in the realm of expanding economic opportunities for minorities. Despite the president's success, his administration's actions are not widely recognized and have received little attention from the national media. To get that message out, the RNC has launched a strategic initiative aimed at recruiting activists within the African-American community. And on this day in 1994, actor-comedian John Candy dies in Durando, Texas, He was 43. And on this day in 1994, the first issue of People magazine, then called People Weekly, is published by Time Life, Inc. On the cover is actress Mia Farrow. And on this day in 1952, Ronald Reagan and Nancy Davis are married in San Fernando Valley, California. The rest of their lives together, certainly history. Well, the deadliest U.S. tornado in nearly six years that ripped through a rural Alabama community on Sunday afternoon came so fast There was less than 10 minutes warning time before touchdown, according to the National Weather Service. USA Today reported that on average in Alabama, there is about a 15-minute lead time for tornado warnings. On Sunday, the time was 8 to 10 minutes. A senior forecaster with the National Weather Service in Birmingham says at least 23 people have been killed, some of them children. Lee County Coroner Bill Harris said at a Monday afternoon news conference that the children killed were ages 6, 9, and 10 He gave no other details at the time. Harris said all but six of the people killed in the storm have been identified, and his office soon will begin contacting families about funeral homes and arrangements. He warned that the overall death toll could still increase as searches continue. The National Weather Service said one of the and uh, possibly two tornadoes struck the area Sunday afternoon with a powerful E4 uh, twister, EF4 twister with winds estimated at 170 miles an hour. That's blamed for most of the destruction. The bigger tornado carved a path nearly one mile wide and 24 miles long, stretching toward Georgia. The agency's chief meteorologist in Birmingham announced the killer winds left shredded metal uh, dangling from the trees and obliterated homes, leaving little more than concrete slabs. So our neighbors in Alabama may need our help. Well, the Trump administration made a decision that could weaken U.S.-South Korean readiness in a conflict with North Korea. And many wonder, was this a concession to North Korea? On Saturday, the Pentagon and South Korean Ministry of Defense announced an end to the joint military exercises that both countries normally partake in each spring. As justification, the Pentagon cited its desire to reduce tensions and support our diplomatic efforts to achieve complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula in a final, fully verified manner. But many are arguing, and I think rightfully so, this is the wrong decision.
Until now, the large U.S.-South Korea joint exercises had only been suspended. That was a questionable decision, but at least plausible, given the nuclear negotiations with North Korea were actively underway. But this announcement is different. It permanently cancels the exercises. It comes on the heels of last week's Vietnam summit between the president of the United States and Chairman Kim Jong-un, which resulted in no forward progress at all toward denuclearization, making the Pentagon's justification even more inexplicable. The exercises called Foul Eagle, or F-O-A-L, probably more Foal Eagle and Key Resolve, were designed to increase readiness to defend South Korea, to protect the region, and to maintain stability on the Korean Peninsula. Foul Eagle involves field exercises and in past years has involved over 10,000 U.S. troops, 290,000 South Koreans. Key Resolve is a computer-driven exercise designed to train headquarters staff and has included some 12,000 Americans and 10,000 South Koreans. Both exercises had been conducted for decades. Well, the U.S. and South Korea had postponed all joint exercises since June of 2018, the Singapore summit, where the president announced that he was suspending war games while nuclear negotiations were ongoing. He tweeted, holding back the war games during the negotiations was my request because was my request because they were very expensive and set a bad light during a good faith negotiation. Also quite provocative. Well, a typical exercise cost about $14 million, not a trivial amount, but necessary in order to um, to practice military coordination with allies and iron out the wrinkles that inevitably emerge in complex military operations when you have two um, countries speaking two different languages. In Korea's uh, war plans, U.S. and South Korea forces are fully integrated, and that coordination demands constant rehearsal. Well, many credit much of the success of the 91 Operation Desert Storm in Iraq to the exercises conducted in 1990 by U.S. Central Command, which practiced sending forces to the Persian Gulf. Well, as uh, Bruce Klingner, who is a, um, a Korean expert, has written, President Trump's decision to cancel allied military exercises has been the gift that keeps on giving for North Korea. Washington and Seoul have canceled at least nine military exercises, including Freedom Guardian, um, Ulchi, well, I won't try to pronounce all of them. Some of them are in Korean. Two allied marine exercise programs, um, exercises and artillery exercise in the West Sea, land and sea drills in the East Sea, vigilant um, ace and foul eagle. The best military is of little value unless it is properly trained. And by canceling, not just suspending these exercises, the U.S. is unilaterally lowering its preparedness. Well, as I mentioned, the uh, president has, uh, is outlining what to uh, form the Space Force, as it is called, chuckle, chuckle, um, uh, as it's in the process of being developed. Well, this move is an important step toward defending the space domain, which is home to critical assets that deliver everything from precision targeting and missile launch warning to the communication and signals that allow banking, commerce, travel, and almost every other aspect of our high-tech society to function. It's not men putting on spacesuit looking outward. Russia and China are aware of our near-complete reliance on space systems, and they've positioned themselves to move against them. It's been over 11 years since China proved it's capable of destroying satellites in space using ground-based missiles, and in the years since, Russian satellites co-orbiting in close proximity with ours have been equally provocative. In 2018, an independent report emerged from a bipartisan congressional directive that recommended the U.S. establish an independent space force through a two-phased approach that would reestablish our dominance in the space domain. In the months since, the administration has used the president's current authorities to execute the first phase of that approach, and one of its first priorities has been acquisition of new technologies. 
Now, acquisition has been pretty difficult in recent years. The fragmentation and overlap among the six organizations that manage space requirements, six separate agencies, six separate functions, and the eight others charged with acquisition have contributed to program delays, cost increases, and even cancellation. Uh, to fix um, those issues, the president directed the Pentagon to create the Space Development Agency. It's an organization that will streamline and accelerate the fielding of cutting-edge military space assets. For decades, the U.S. has promoted and sustained a policy of peaceful use of and access to space, but giving operators a leg up in space systems will only be relevant if the personnel operating those systems embrace a more aggressive mindset. So last December, the president moved to do just that by ordering the military to establish a space combatant command, an organization that specializes in combat operations in space. Now, again, we're not talking about placing people there, but protecting the assets that are there that we use and are critical to our national security. Well, just as Central Command handles military operations in the Middle East, Space Command will be charged with those same responsibilities in the domain of space. The president will formalize the order later this year by signing a revised unified command plan. And President Trump prompted a thunderous chant of USA, USA from an audience of conservative activists on Saturday when he announced actions to protect free speech on college campuses. Now, you scratch your head and wonder, isn't free speech already protected on college campuses? And why would you need the redundancy of uh, this kind of protection? Well, we know the challenges that we've seen, particularly when it comes to conservative speech, where it's oftentimes simply shouted off campus or Uh, uninvited or disinvited. Trump made the announcement after inviting Hayden Williams, a 26-year-old, who says he was assaulted for his beliefs on the 19th of February in university, rather at the University of California, Berkeley, to come on stage and speak briefly at the Conservative Political Action Conference. He took a hard punch in the face for all of this. There's video, by the way, and we can never allow that to happen, the president said. We'll tell you more about this effort. President vowing to cut funding to colleges that don't protect free speech. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Uh, once again, coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with New York Times bestselling author Joel Rosenberg, his latest novel, The Persian Gamble. Mm. We're talking about the president who announced to thunderous applause at uh, the conservative activist, uh, activist conference uh, that he, this is CPAC, by the way, that he is um, vowing to cut funding to colleges that don't protect free speech, uh, saying, and I quote, today I'm proud to announce that I will be very soon signing an executive order requiring colleges and universities to support free speech if they want federal funding. Uh, if they want our dollars and we give it to them by the billions, they've got to allow people like Hayden and many other great young people and old people to speak. Free speech, if they don't allow free speech, it will be very costly. It will be signed very soon, the president said, of the executive order. Well, the um, president delivered a wide-ranging speech lasting a little over two hours at CPAC, the largest annual national gathering of conservative activists held through Saturday in uh, National Harbor, Maryland, just outside of Washington. How this would work, and it doesn't seem to me it's a unilateral executive order uh, act, but nonetheless, how this uh, ends up moving forward, we'll certainly uh, try to follow. Well, American parents are demanding more and better K-12 options. And while most of the K-12 educational funding and policy decisions are appropriately housed in the states, an innovative new policy idea would allow the federal government to play a constructive role in expanding educational opportunity in America. 
U.S. Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos has unveiled a proposal for education freedom scholarships. I put an asterisk by that. We'll return in just a moment. But uh, it has corresponding legislation that was introduced by Senator Ted Cruz and Representative Bradley Byrne. Uh, The plan would invest $5 billion annually in America's students by allowing individuals and businesses to make contributions to in-state nonprofit scholarship granting organizations or SGOs that provide scholarships to students. Contributors would receive a non-refundable dollar-for-dollar federal tax credit in return for their donations. No contributor would be allowed a total tax benefit greater than the amount of their contribution, and not a single dollar would be taken away from public schools and the students who attend them. Well, the plan mandates that scholarships must be used for an individual student's elementary or secondary education or for their career and technical education. Now, the plan's implementation, including governance of these SGOs, education providers and education expenses, as well as student eligibility decisions, would be left to each state that chooses to participate. Now, the plan requires states to distribute at least 90 percent of the funds as scholarships. Other than that, everything else about the program would be left up to each state. But there are concerns. Lindsay Burke, who's the director of the Heritage Foundation Center for Education Policy, and Adam Michelle, a senior policy analyst in the Grover um, Herman Center for Federal uh, Budget, they warn that this kind of proposal could reverse the nation's school choice gains and recent tax policy reforms. So there is another side to it. It's wonderful that the administration wants to advance school choice, but a nationwide federal tax credit scholarship program is the wrong way to do it. This could open the door for further education regulations uh, down the road that neutralize the advantages of private education as well as impede future tax reform efforts. In other words, you get the dollars and then you are required to conform to whatever the government uh, would like the private institution to do. Future administrations could use a federal tax credit scholarship to require that schools adhere to certain admissions and accountability policies. That would mean the federal government could further dictate testing, reporting, academic content, and even bathroom policies for all schools involved. Their proposal is also outside of the federal government's jurisdiction. It would grow rather than reduce federal intervention in education. It would be better for the education department to keep highlighting the great advances that states have made in school choice already. Also, the federal tax code is an appropriate place to intervene in state education policy. The program would uh, complicate tax filing, undermine the important goals of the 2017 tax reform, uh, which worked to remove subsidies and simplify tax paying for Americans. If the administration, along with Congress, want to advance education choice for families, they should focus more on military-connected children, Native American students, and students in the District of Columbia. Uh, It's been documented how education savings accounts for military-connected children, for example, could be a very useful readiness and retention tool for the military. So while the program sounds like it may have some promise, it certainly does have another side to it. Well, the U.S. Supreme Court declined to hear a case about whether churches or other religious institutions in New Jersey are entitled to public funds for historic preservation. The ruling involved a four-year-long battle in Morris County over whether county money should be used to repair historic churches. The New Jersey State Supreme Court ruled last year that the county could not continue to give historic preservation grants to 12 churches. Now, the the, uh, uh, state extends the designation historic preservation, but then would not grant the resources to maintain that status. For years, Morris County has been giving uh, churches money to make aesthetic and structural repairs to historic churches under a historic preservation program. In 2015, a county uh, freeholder objected, arguing that taxpayer funds should not be used to repair places of worship. 
The Supreme Court ruling was unanimous, but three justices said the issue should soon be addressed. At some point, this court will need to decide whether governments that distribute historic preservation funds may deny funds to religious organizations simply because the organizations are religious. Justice Brett Kavanaugh wrote, Two other justices, Samuel Alito and Neil Gorsuch, agreed. Kavanaugh noted that just because the court did not take up the issue does not mean it agrees with the lower court's ruling. Barring religious organizations because they are religious from a general historic preservation grant program is pure discrimination against religion, Kavanaugh wrote. And he said denying the organization's funds simply because it is religious would raise serious questions under this court's precedence and the Constitution's fundamental guarantee of equality. Now, the high court recently reversed a Missouri law preventing a Lutheran school from getting public funds to make a playground safer. (coughs) So we have not heard the last of that particular question. Well, an amendment to the Civil Rights Code of Portland extends protections against discrimination in employment, housing, public accommodation to atheists, agnostics and other nonbelievers. Religious facilities are expressly exempt The Portland City Council chapter, or I should say the Portland City Code, chapter 23.01, already prohibits discrimination on the basis of race, religion, gender, and national origin. The amendment, unanimously approved by the Portland City Council, will go into effect on the 29th of this month. The new ordinance amends Portland Civil Rights Ordinance to include non-religion as a protected class. It also broadens the definition of religion used in the city code, clarifying that it expressly includes non-religion, such as atheism, agnosticism, and non-belief in God or gods, as have been, uh, has been recognized by the courts. Well, after the new ordinance goes into effect, employees who suffer discrimination on the basis of non-religion may sue their employer or lodge a complaint with the Oregon Bureau of Labor and Industries. Employers in Portland, as well as employers with employees who work within the city, must comply with the new ordinance. Employers should ensure compliance by updating their workplace procedures and policies, as well as their employee handbooks, and train management and employees on the procedure and policies. Now, I mentioned there is a religious facilities exemption. Now, that certainly would include churches, but the question is, what about uh, nonprofits that are religious in nature, uh, Christian schools, it seems because these are religious facilities, they would be expressly exempt. But there are questions about to what extent those exemptions would apply. Portland is the second city in the nation after Madison, Wisconsin, to designate nonbelievers as a protected class. And you certainly may be protected from discrimination, but there are other um, losses by failing to acknowledge the sovereignty of God that cannot be accounted for by the Portland City Council. Finally, the Department of Health and Human Services say it has granted a second 90-day extension to a contract that it has with the University of California at San Francisco that requires um, them to make humanized mice. Uh, These um, creatures are made by implanting mice with human tissue taken from late-term aborted babies. Health and Human Services' multi-million dollar contract with UCSF that requires the construction of these humanized mice, creates a demand driven by federal tax dollars for tissue taken from late-term aborted babies. According to an estimate it has published on its website, the National Institutes of Health will spend $95 million this fiscal year alone on research that, like USCF's humanized mouse contract, uses human fetal tissue. Under the new 90-day extension, the contract, which the government calls Humanized Mouse Models for HIV Therapeutics Development, will run through June 5th. 
Health and Human Services also is still in the process of conducting the comprehensive review it announced last September of all research involving fetal tissue, dragging their feet along the way. That review was initiated to ensure that all federal funded research using human fetal tissue is consistent with statutes and regulations governing such research and to ensure the adequacy of procedures and oversight of this research in light of the serious regulatory, moral and ethical considerations involved, which clearly they have jettisoned in this case. The USCF um, contract has been issued another extension, HHS said on Friday, in response to questions from Uh, CNS News about the contract and the review. We will provide an update on the review once it has been concluded and as appropriate, HHS said. Well, it was first reported back in October of last year um, that the National Institutes of Health, which is part of HHS, originally signed a humanized mouse contract on the 6th of December 2013. The contract was for a one-year period and gave the government the option of renewing it for up to six additional one-year periods through December 2020. According to the contract information published in the Federal Procurement Data System, um, the new three-month extension will pay about $521,082, bringing the total payments the federal government has made to US, uh, UCSF for the contract up to $10 million. The government continues renewing the contract through December 5th of 2020. Health and Human Services would end up paying UCSF a total of $13 million. The contract specifically requires researchers to make two different types of humanized mice. By the way, if you're a young person, you're pro-life, and you would like to receive some leader training, I want to let you know that uh, this year's Student Leadership Retreat is coming up March the 24th through the 27th, and uh, Oregon Right to Life has extended the deadline one week to March the 6th. If you are interested, go to their website Find out more. They normally have around 25 students. There are some openings available. So if you'd like to be trained as a student leader, this is a great opportunity for you to attend their retreat. News and traffic up here at the top of the hour. Then we'll talk with Joel Rosenberg, author of The Persian Gamble. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Well, I'm so excited about this next hour because we have the opportunity to talk with Joel Rosenberg, who once again has proven his ability to foreshadow geopolitical realities as a leader in fact-based fiction with his newest political thriller out uh, in the middle of this month, The Persian Gamble. Um, uh, One of his... uh, uh, observers pointed out that this is the boldest, most daring th- thriller to date, saying it offers up a terrifying glimpse of where the conflict between Russia and the United States could be headed. And I would certainly agree. Well, this is Joel Rosenberg's 14th book. It's based off his research and uh, trips to the West Wing in the White House, the Kremlin, the tunnels under the DMZ between North and South Korea, the presidential palace in Cairo, the royal palace in Amman, and the brutal streets of Kabul in Afghanistan. Yeah, I know. How does he do it all? We'll talk about that in a few minutes. Well, Joel Rosenberg has garnered high-powered fans ranging from presidents, prime ministers, kings to CIA directors, dozens of members of the U.S. House and Senate. In addition to entertaining readers worldwide as a fiction author, he also regularly meets with world leaders, serves as a news expert regarding the threat of Russia and the danger of evil if it's ignored. Well, Joel Rosenberg is a New York Times best-selling author of 14 novels and five nonfiction books with nearly 5 million copies sold. 
He's been interviewed by or written articles for hundreds of media outlets. He's been profiled by the New York Times, the Washington Times, the Jerusalem Post. He's a graduate of Syracuse University with a BFA in filmmaking. Uh, He's married and he and his family live in uh, Israel. We're just delighted to have Joel Rosenberg back. I look forward to this and just uh, I figure the time between books is just, you know, waiting for the next one to come out. Joel Rosenberg, welcome. Hey, Georgine. Great to be with you again. Thank it's, you for having me on the show. It's good to have you back. Well, this latest book, The Persian Gamble, uh, brings together elements that are much in the headlines today, but in a way, painting a scenario of what could happen if events were to move in a particular direction. And I know one of the things that impresses us most about your writing is that you seem to have uh, not just insight, but foresight in terms of, of the worst case scenario, uh, should people not take evil as seriously as they ought? Well, in this case, the Persian gamble, um, the regime in in Tehran, the Iranian regime, uh, is secretly trying to buy five operational, uh, fully operational nuclear warheads uh, from North Korea. Uh, They're trying to do this uh, secretly because publicly the Iranian regime is claiming that they are adhering to the uh, famous Iran nuclear deal that President Obama and the Western powers negotiated with Iran uh, several years ago. So, uh, as you may recall, in the actual Iran nuclear deal, uh, the U.S. and the Western powers gave Iran $150 billion in cash uh, to say yes, uh, essentially, to, um, to this nuclear deal. But in the novel, The Persian Gamble, Iran is using that money to secretly buy these five fully operational nuclear warheads from North Korea. So now, admittedly, this is, this is fiction, right? Where I'm not, this is not, this is not a, you know, a Bob Woodward book. Yeah. It's not a story of what's really happening. And yet, it's, I think it's a chillingly plausible scenario, given the fact that right now, uh, North Korea has between 20 and 60 fully operational nuclear warheads. They've been testing their nuclear warheads, and they seem ready to go. And that's why, uh, in real life, President Trump was in in Hanoi last week uh, trying to negotiate with the North Koreans to give up these weapons, because, God forbid, if they don't get rid of them, they're going to either use them or sell them. Now, you in the book, you um, have the world powers of Russia, uh, Iran, North Korea, uh, collaborating together in what would be a, a holy terror uh, if it were to develop in the way that you um, outline in the book, and certainly, again, is very plausible. Uh, you also have the former U.S. Secret Service agent Marcus Riker, who is a character that continues from your, your previous book. Um, tell us why these three captured the, uh, the focus of this next addition to your series. Right. Well, you know, in some ways, uh, they seem an unlikely uh, trio uh, to form an axis of evil. Um, the, the the actual real-life government of Russia is very, very different from the government in Iran, mm-hmm. which is very different, uh, in turn, from the leadership of North Korea, right? Uh, Vladimir Putin is, is, is a, an imperialist. He's a modern 21st century Russian czar. That's how he. That's how Putin sees himself. Uh, the leader of North Korea. How does he see himself, Kim Jong Un, as a god? <laughs> you know, as a megalomaniacal uh, dictator of a communist regime. Then you go to Iran. How does the Ayatollah Khomeini or Khamenei uh, see himself? 
Well, he sees himself as the John the Baptist, laying the groundwork, as it were, for the Islamic uh, Messiah, known as the 12th Imam, who's going to come and reign over the entire world and force us all to you know, convert to Islam or die. Those are three very different governments, and yet, uh, and yet in real life, uh, the Russians, the Iranians, and the North Koreans are, are building a military alliance that maybe hasn't gone as far as what I'm portraying in the Persian Gamble, but, but, but they are working closely together. And the question is why? The reason why Moscow, Pyongyang, and Tehran work so closely together in real life is because of their deep, deep hatred of the United States mm-hmm. and the Western alliance. And their... Uh, that 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 hatred uh, is an incredibly risky and dangerous situation for us in America and for all of our allies, because you know maybe Russia isn't crazy enough to actually launch a nuclear weapon at us, but North Korea and Iran might be. And uh, right now, North Korea has the weapons. Iran is trying to get the weapons. North Korea has the ICBMs that can reach America. Iran wants those ICBMs. So uh, it's an incredibly dangerous alliance. So the, the, uh, the common enemy being the United States is what holds them together. But is that sufficient to hold them together through what could be a major conflict? And what happens if they succeed? Because as you've just described, these are three very different uh, leaders, very different um, countries with different styles and goals. That's right. And in the Persian Gamble, um, you get a sense of, of the differences, even uh, while um, watching how and why they might work closely together. Um, ultimately, Russia wants to be the leader of, of this alliance. Uh, they're trying to form an alliance with a lot of other countries, not just uh, North Korea and Iran. But in North Korea and Iran, they've got two of the most dangerous rogue regimes uh, on the planet in the history of mankind. And, uh, you know, the idea that that one of these countries can control the destiny of the others, uh, when they, even if they want to, is, uh, that's a problematic idea. And, and, and that's what was happening in the Persian Gamble, is you've got uh, the, uh, the North Koreans who have these weapons, but their they're, but their people are starving and they're and they're crying out for cash because of all these economic sanctions. Rather than make peace, they're trying to make money by selling military hardware uh, secretly. So the question is, might they get so desperate that they decide to sell nuclear weapons right off the shelf uh, to Iran, which has a lot of money and is desperately trying to get these weapons? And that's where my former Secret Service agent, former Marine uh, Marcus Riker, finds himself right in the middle of this vortex of evil uh, and begins to pick up on uh, the rumors that uh, North Korea is about to make this deal with Iran. And Riker has to figure out, is it true? And how do I confirm it? And then uh, how do I intercept it and thwart it from happening? Now, your um, books, as I've mentioned, tend to reflect uh, what's going on geopolitically with a great deal of insight. From your perspective, do you want your readers um, to be, uh, do you see this as a cautionary tale? Uh, Do you see this as pure entertainment? What do you hope your readers come away with 
uh, when they've looked at what is likely the worst case scenario may not happen, might may not be likely, but could happen. What do you uh, hope to accomplish? Well, I guess all uh, I've got a lot of objectives, but the number one for Gene by far is to entertain people. Right. If I don't keep you up all night till you're cursing me on Twitter or Facebook (laughs) or some form of social media at five or six o'clock in the morning because you've been reading all night telling yourself just just one more chapter and suddenly it's time to go to work. (laughs) If you're not cursing me, then I have not done my job Uh, that, you know, people don't have the time or the money to waste uh, on, you know, 28 bucks or whatever a retail to, on, on a story that's made up. You know, I'm amazed to sell 5 million <laughs> copies of things that are not true. Um, I mean, some of the books that I wrote are, are nonfiction, so that's, that's different. But the vast majority of what I write are completely made up. And to hold someone to the first chapter, to the next chapter, to every single page, um, and to and and to have them be, you know, just intensely interested in, in what's going to happen, how this story is going to end, uh, is very hard to do, uh, especially when it's not just regular, ordinary people like you and me who are reading it. It's um, the vice president of the United States reads these books. Uh, Mike Pence, uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo reads these books. Um, you know, it's, it's the King Abdullah of Jordan reads these books, former directors of the Central Intelligence Agency. Why are they reading these books? Like, they know they have more access to more dangerous things uh, than any of us. And yet, so, so, so writing a novel that can entertain and hold their yeah. attention yeah. is extremely different, difficult. Now, it's also true that I'm trying to educate and inspire and warn and there's a lot of things going on in these novels um, because I think a lot of Americans know, oh, I, I, I know I should know more about the North Korean problem. Trump is over there trying to fix it and the Iranian problem and the Russians, but I don't have the time or interest to get, you know, up to speed on, you know, read hundreds, you know, 900 page books on the history of this country or that. So, right, so reading a high-speed political thriller, if it's well-constructed, you know, you have an opportunity to sort of learn the issues without realizing that you're learning it because, because I'm taking you on this high-speed yeah. uh, thrill ride where your heart is pounding and you forget that your brain is actually learning something. We're going to continue our conversation in a moment, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, talking this afternoon with Joel Rosenberg. His forthcoming novel portrays the terrifying national threat of a North Korea, Iran, and Russia nuclear alliance. More on the Persian gamble when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Continuing my conversation this afternoon with New York Times bestselling author um, Joel Rosenberg, his latest new political thriller, The Persian Gamble, it closely mirrors events uh, in the Middle East. Now, the president just had his uh, second summit with Kim Jong-un. There were those in this country who wanted to see it fail for political reason. There were others who wanted desperately to see uh, this uh, talk move forward toward denuclearization. The South Koreans were hopeful. How, from your perspective and your knowledge base, how likely was it that this was going to be anything more than a photo op? And do you think the uh, uh, the Trump administration is prepared sufficiently to move forward in a constructive way that can lead to denuclearization? 
Well, it's a good question, Georgine. Um, I have been supportive of President Trump's efforts to get the North Koreans to the table and to try to convince uh, Kim Jong-un, the, the dear leader of uh, North Korea, that it is in his personal interest mm-hmm. to give up the nuclear weapons program, uh, scrap that, make peace with South Korea, um, have all the economic sanctions removed, and join the global economy. This is how his people are going to eat, and this is how ultimately his regime will be safe because uh, because it will have some degree of legitimacy of, of at least taking care of the people rather than enslaving and starving them. Uh, now, I, I think what... I think there's a lot of skepticism that it's going to work, and I, I share the skepticism, yeah. but I don't share the cynicism, right? You have a lot of people on the left who are, who are acting, this is ridiculous. What is, what is President Trump even bothering? Even, what, what, is he, what kind of idiot does he think he is that he can make a deal with a rogue regime like North Korea? But they weren't saying that when President Obama was dealing with the rogue regime of Iran. Now, the problem is, so... so, so I was not opposed to Obama negotiating with Iran, but I was opposed to him making a terrible deal where Iran gets everything and where we get nothing. And that's why I I think that President Trump was right. Once he realized, look, these guys are not ready yet. Maybe they will be in six months or a year, but they're not ready now. So he walked away. He didn't give them um, all the concessions that North Korea wanted, and that shocked North Korea. Because North Korea, you know, many regimes, or I'm sorry, many American presidents, Clinton and Obama, for example, uh, but the Bush team, too, made deals with uh, North Korea that, uh, that were useless. Mm-hmm. And um, so it was good for Trump to, to try, also good for him to walk away. Do you think Kim Jong-un has any inkling that giving up his nuclear weapons in exchange for legitimacy and the ability to provide for his people is even something he's taking seriously? You know, I think he is taking it seriously. I just think he's testing how serious Trump is, hmm. right? I mean, if you can get something for nothing, why not get it? You know, you know, the Iranians tested Obama, and they found out that Obama wanted the deal more than they did, and therefore they they were persu- they were able to persuade Obama to take a really really bad deal. Uh, they were not able. Uh, the North Koreans were not able to persuade that of Trump. Now, is that still a risk? Yeah, it's a risk. Anytime you start to engage in, uh, in negotiations, uh, then there's a risk that you'll take a bad deal over no deal. But uh, Trump didn't, um, and I was encouraged by that. Because, you know, Trump is still, uh, well, there's things I support about him, and there's things that make me nervous about him. And so I wasn't quite sure what he was going to do. Yeah. But I have to tell you, I do like Secretary Pompeo. I know him personally. I do like John Bolton. I know him personally. These are tough guys. They're smart guys. And I think with them at President Trump's side, uh, there's, there's as good a shot as there's going to be at trying to see whether the North Koreans are ready to to give up. And imagine if they did. It would really be a great, great development. Oh, absolutely. Now, in your um, your forthcoming novel, The Persian Gamble, North Korea continues to be the, the sort of hermit country that's desperate for resources to continue. Uh, and is that what motivates them in The Persian Gamble? 
uh, to ally itself with Russia and Iran in making their nuclear weapons available? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the alliance between uh, Russia, North Korea, and Iran, that already exists. Um, but what we haven't seen, and what I interject, uh, inject rather, uh, into the Persian gamble, is this idea that North Korea might secretly sell the actual, you know, five of the nuclear warheads that they actually have already built or, you know, have received from another country, Russia. So that, I think, is fiction at the moment. But, uh, but again, North Korea is so desperate for cash uh, that, and, and oil that it, it's not implausible. I think it is plausible that North Korea might find themselves willing to make a deal with Iran for cash and for oil uh, to, you know, to, to give up five nuclear warheads, which they're not using to get money and oil that they do, they would use. Uh, yeah, I think that's possible. And that's what terrifies me. Mm-hmm. And that's why I wanted to put my, my hero, uh, Marcus Riker right in the middle of that and say, okay, fix that, figure that out. And that was a tough, uh, but fun novel to write. Yeah. Now, The Persian Gamble follows the success of your 2018 novel, The Kremlin Conspiracy, and it portrayed the growing tension between the United States and Russia. And again, your uh, your main character, former U.S. Secret Service agent Marcus Riker, um, is smack dab in the middle of all this as well. Now, it seemed like he was sort of sidelined. He was no longer going to have a, a, an official position, but he is he's sort of drawn back into all of this drama as events unfold. That's right. Marcus Riker is the hero of these stories, and he's a former uh, uh, combat veteran from the Marines. He served uh, multiple tours of duty in combat um, in Afghanistan, in Iraq, and then came home, um, of course, got married. Uh, well, not of course, unless you've read the book, but anyway, gets married to his high school sweetheart. And then joins the United States Secret Service um, and serves you know, first as a junior agent running counterfeiters down, but eventually working up to the elite presidential protective detail where he's protecting the president of the United States and actually wins a, a Medal of Valor uh, being wounded in the process of being uh, uh, protecting the president. So this is who my character is, but through a series of tragedies that I, I won't mention on the air now, people have to read it, some seriously bad things happen in his life. And so we watch Riker uh, sort of emerge into the height of his you know, sort of hero- heroic uh, history, and then he sinks down into leaving government, leaving the Secret Service, uh, retiring because of some personal tragedies in his life, and he's trying to figure out what to do next and how to, you know, how to pick himself up off off the real pain. And that's where some friends say, "Hey, come with us to Moscow. We've got you know the senator going on a trip. Maybe you can you know provide some security and some counsel." And and he finds himself in the exact wrong place. Hmm at the exact right time, and uh, that's the Kremlin conspiracy. And uh, the two books really are linked uh, symbiotically. I mean, ideally, you've read the Kremlin conspiracy, and then you read the Persian Gamble. But I tried to write the Persian Gamble such that if someone hasn't read the past book, they could pick it up and get right into it and and not miss a beat. Well, and again, it's it's amazing how... 
uh, what you write reflects what we're seeing and a, a, a scenario that could, we hope and pray doesn't, but, but could be plausible uh, in the future. One of the things that marks the, the quality of your writing is that you do an extraordinary amount of research to make your thrillers as realistic and timely as possible. How, how do you gain the kind of access that gives you that kind of insight? Yeah, well, it's a good question, Georgine. I, I I didn't set out with a strategy, but I think part of the benefit was um, being involved in politics for more than a decade. Admittedly, I was a failed political consultant, so all of my candidates lost. Um, but one of my candidates was Prime Minister of Israel, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, and uh, and others uh, were people who opened doors for me as friends to other very interesting leaders. So, so part of it is being, having lived in Washington for a quarter of a century, now moving to Israel, living in Israel, meeting with all these people. But then also the fact that after five million copies of these books sold, they, they earn certain types of fans. Mm-hmm. And some of them are former directors of the Central Intelligence Agency. Some of them are former you know, or current kings or presidents or prime ministers. President George W. Bush has been reading the last couple of novels and sent me very nice notes about them. It was very, very thoughtful. But what happens is doors open, and you end up meeting people who are in current office at high-level intelligence or military or political roles, or they're former. Either way, uh, and some are Americans, some are foreigners. But they will invite you to come and spend time with them and ask them a thousand questions, and they ask you. And the next thing you know, you are gathering a lot of really interesting information. Let me give you one example. Uh Uh, So this is a political thriller about the threat of Iran to the United States, to Israel, and to our Arab allies in the Middle East. I'm not sure about this, but I, I believe... I'm the only American political thriller writer who's ever actually met with the leaders of, of the United, uh, not only the United States and Israel, but Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Egypt, and Jordan, and have been to all of the, you know, not only to the White House, but been to the palaces in each of those Arab countries to spend hours of time talking to these leaders at the most senior level. Uh, the princes, the kings, the crown, the crown princes, the presidents, talking about Iran, the Iran threat, and other issues, and talking to their top intelligence chiefs and their foreign ministers. It's a very interesting way. You know, I, I don't know if you can. I'm not sure if it's a strategy. <laughs> it happens to have opened up, and it, I, mean, I think it adds a lot of flavor, a lot of nuance into these novels. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation. We're talking with New York Times bestselling author set to release a new political thriller, The Persian Gamble, closely mirroring events uh, in the Middle East. Joel Rosenberg, my guest, will be back in a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show uh, we're talking with the New York Times bestselling author, Joel Rosenberg. His uh, uh, book, The Kremlin Conspiracy, uh, precedes this book, his latest international thriller about a terrifying nuclear alliance among three world powers, Russia, Iran, and North Korea, and the man who has to halt their deadly strategy. The book is titled The Persian Gamble, and we're talking about this book that is a must-read. And you need to time when you're going to do it, because as you mentioned earlier, uh, you don't want to start right before you, you're planning to go to sleep because you will 
uh, you won't be able to um, to put the book down. Uh, let me ask you about since you brought up Benjamin Netanyahu, how serious are the political uh, difficulties that we're hearing about here uh, and in terms of his political future and the election that's coming up in April? Yeah, uh, well, he's in big trouble. Um, Prime Minister Netanyahu um, has been investigated on four different um, corruption um, cases. Uh, the Attorney General of Israel has just announced that he's going to indict uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu on three of those cr- uh, criminal corruption cases. It, it, it involves um, bribery, uh, it involves all kinds of uh, very uh, bad <laughs> allegations. Now, you know, the man's presumed innocent until he's proven guilty. But when you have an attorney general um, who's, you know, indicted a, a sitting prime minister uh, on three major counts of corruption that are three entirely different cases at the same time, uh, this does not bode well. Um, his election, you know, numbers are falling already, and the election in Israel will be April 9th. So, um you know, there are, Netanyahu is is close to being the longest-serving prime minister in the history of Israel. He served for three years during the 1990s, 1996 through 1999. He lost re-election then. I was on his comeback campaign team in 2000. We were thwarted, and it took him nine years to come back. But he's been the prime minister now for ten more years. So he is a man who knows how to win, even when the chips are down. But I don't know exactly how he gets out of this one. This is uh, this is the most serious challenge he's ever faced. And remember, you know, what a lot of Israelis, even who admire him for what he's done with the economy and foreign policy and protecting Israel, um, is still a, a sitting prime minister who wants to be prime minister again, but is going to have to spend a lot of his time every day working on his legal defense. That means he's not paying attention to the needs of the country for that many hours every day, every week. And that's going to be weighing on the minds of voters who think maybe he ought to do something else and we need somebody else. So uh, we may be approaching the end of the Netanyahu era. Mm. Uh, Are these criminal charges and what's the worst case scenario if he is found guilty? Yeah, he could go to prison for a long time long time. Uh, you know, we've, Israel plays hardball with its p- political leaders, meaning it, um, uh, just a few years ago, uh, a sitting prime minister, Ehud Olmert, mm-hmm. was indicted uh, for, for things he had done allegedly prior to becoming prime minister. He was mayor of Jerusalem when those crimes uh, were allegedly done. But in the end, he had to step down from being prime minister he was uh, indicted, he was convicted, and he went to prison. Uh, and years before that, uh, a sitting prime, or a president of Israel, Moshe Katsav, was indicted and uh, removed from office and went to prison for uh, uh, sexual um, uh, crimes uh, committed in office. So those are just two recent examples in the last 10 or 15 years of cases that, you know, it's not like, you know, in the United States, we've only had Richard Nixon in that situation, and he was pardoned. And of course, uh, Bill Clinton was impeached, but not convicted. 
And, you know, so American leaders have never gone to prison uh, if you're the president of the United States. But in Israel, uh, they do. Yeah. Now, he would be the first to be indicted in office, I understand. Well, I heard somebody say that, but I uh, my recollection is that Ehud Olmert was sitting was. Uh, the sitting prime minister when he was indicted. So, um, but he ended up uh, he ended up quitting and stepping out of the prime minister's role. He didn't run again because his coalition was falling apart. You know, sometimes you know, Bibi Netanyahu, Prime Minister Netanyahu, says he won't step down, and I believe him, but. The possibility exists that people who would be natural coalition members of his government might decide not to sit with a, an indicted prime minister, and that could cause his government to collapse or his next coalition, if he were to win the election, to collapse and you know unravel. Lots of twists and turns ahead, but Israel is facing uh, one of its most challenging seasons in terms of... Uh, uh, compromised leadership. Yeah. Well, let's talk about his political opponent. Uh, obviously, the economy, national security are major issues there. Um, are his opponents or is his opponent uh, up to the task of uh, assuming leadership in those areas in particular? Well, it's a great question, Georgine, because uh, the party that has formed, the new party formed to run against him, is, uh, is made up of three former chiefs of staff of the Israeli military and um, and the leader of another um, opposition um, party. So uh, they certainly have a lot of military experience, but uh, the the leader of that party is a is a former you know general named Benny Gantz, G A N T Z in English. Benny Gantz. Benny Gantz was a very impressive chief of staff of the Israeli military. However, he's never served in parliament. He's never run for office. And it's not the same running an army where everyone has to salute and do what you say to running a government where, you know, the Israeli government is a parliamentary system and it is a knockdown, drag out, hold, no holds barred political process. Uh, Benny Gantz has never been part of it. I'm not saying he can't do it, but he is a novice. At, at this, not a novice of being a leader, but this is a very different type of leadership. Moreover, Gantz is trying to run for prime minister by just being not Bibi Netanyahu, and and that's why he's popular because he's not, you know, he's not knighted. He's not uh, he's not been around forever. He hasn't built a lot of enemies. But Gantz is making a big mistake because he's not telling us what his views are, what his policies will be. He's being very cagey uh, about that. And I have a problem with someone who says, please give me the keys to the car, but I'm not going to tell you where I'm going to drive. That's a problem. And he may fix that in the next you know, 40 days. We'll see. But at the moment, you have a very impressive leader who's not telling us where he's going to take the country. And that, that, so that causes people to be concerned. If you were to predict the outcome of the election, what would you say? No comment. <laughs> it's much easier for me to make things up in a political thriller like the Persian Gamble than to than to, to speculate on what's going to play out in the Israeli political process. Just as it was almost impossible to imagine that uh, Donald Trump, who having never run for president, never served, never served in the military, never served in government, was going to defeat the entire Bush dynasty and the Clinton dynasty 
and become the president of the United States. Like, I did not see that coming. Most people did not. So uh, it would have made a great novel, but I didn't even think of it. <laughs> yeah, who could have thought of that? <laughs> We're well, gonna... <laughs> that would have been quite a, quite a novel, but it was even stranger than fiction. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back to wrap things up. Again, we're talking with Joel Rosenberg, his forthcoming novel, The Persian Gamble, a great read. You're not going to want to put it down, so, you know, time your reading accordingly. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We will be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm uh, wrapping up my conversation with Joel Rosenberg. His latest novel is out. It's a new political thriller, The Persian Gamble. You'll recognize former U.S. Uh, Secret Service agent Marcus Riker. There's another character that's also introduced into this uh, version, a Russian double agent. And it is uh, one of those page turners that you're not going to want to put down. It's a great follow-up to The Kremlin Conspiracy. But if you haven't read that one yet, you can still pick it up right at The Persian Gamble. Uh, I will warn you, though, you're going to want to go back and and, uh, read the uh, previous uh, novels as well. Uh, Well, this is an exciting um, uh, book. It's an exciting entry into your series of of, uh, books that really hold us spellbound thinking about what could uh, could happen. As we mentioned, you have a great deal of access to uh, political and national leaders. Um, Do you find that your books sometimes influence uh, their thinking, or do you find that you're more influenced by their thinking in terms of how you structure your books, or is it a little bit of both? Well, that's a good question. Uh, and I, I will note that uh, uh, the Kremlin Conspiracy is now out in paperback, so uh, for people who want to get it a little cheaper and read it uh, before the Persian Gamble uh, comes out on uh, March 12th, I would encourage you to do that. It's also available on ebook and audio. You know, I don't know... Uh, I don't know. I've never had one of these national leaders or world leaders tell me that they had made some different type of decision, you know, based on reading one of my novels. Uh, I would say, by and large, they're influencing me primarily. But but there must be something in these books that that hook their interests uh, and. You know, I guess what I hope is happening, but they're not telling me this, but what I hope is happening is they're, they're thinking about threats mm-hmm. materializing that they might not have sort of connected the dots quite that way. You know, you, don't, you can't assume that just because somebody is the president of the United States or the vice president or the king of a certain country um, or the prime minister that they've thought of every scenario, right? It's true that they have access to much more intelligence and they have more insight and experience than I do, but... Sometimes when you read a scenario that's written out, spelled out in a novel form, it's very different from reading an intelligence document. And uh, so I'm hopeful. Forgive, you know, you and I talked last year about the threat of Russia launching a fast, super fast invasion of one of the Baltic countries, uh, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, which are NATO countries. And if Russia were to do that really fast, like in about 96 hours, swallow up one of these small NATO countries, um, people would say, well, you know, Putin would never do that or Russia would never do that because attacking a NATO country would trigger Article 5, which would mean all of NATO would have to go to war against Russia. That seems crazy, except the way I wrote the, the Kremlin conspiracy suggests what if a Russian leader captured a NATO country, a small NATO country, quickly, and then dared NATO, are you really going to go to nuclear war to save Estonia? 
to save lives. Most Americans don't even know where these countries are. You're really going to risk nuclear war. And when you think about it that way, you realize, I think, uh, or I, I guess that's my premise for Kremlin conspiracy, was that Russia could completely unravel the entire NATO alliance by doing something we think they would never do. Strike fast, capture a small country, NATO country, and then dare us to go to nuclear war to get it back. I honestly don't think we would. And that would be in the end of Article 5. No one would believe us that Article 5 really meant anything. And that would be the end of the NATO alliance. It could be, if the Russians invaded one of those countries tonight, by next week, the NATO alliance could be over. And I think when you read a novel like that, and you think, whoa, that's crazy, but is it crazy? Um, that's where I think, I guess I hope, um, I could influence a leader, you know, at the senior level of our government uh, to just think about something that they never thought about before. And in that case, just there's, there was a simple antidote, and that is put more troops in the NATO countries, uh, in the Baltics, so that no Russian leader would be tempted to think that these are countries that are too lightly defended and could be grabbed quickly. Yeah. yeah. Well, the book is titled The Persian Gamble. It's out in bookstores on the 12th. I would highly recommend you read it. I haven't quite finished, but I'm on the edge of my chair. In fact, we need to finish our conversation so I can finish the book. Joe Rosenberg, thank you so much for uh, talking with us today. Appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome, Georgine. Always great to be with you. Sorry it's not in person. <laughs> maybe sometime. We'll look forward to that. I'd like that. Okay, bye-bye. Again, the Persian Gamble. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll be back tomorrow. Hope you're with us. Good night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at Show. And like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.